All right, today we're going to be talking about uh, war weapons and capital punishment. Um, first, let's start off, um, like, what is the evil in war? And, like, it asks a question that says, is it death? Oh, no, not really. It's, it, in the beginning, it says the real evils in war is the love of violence. So... That's people falling in love with killing people. And, like, that's real easy to happen, honestly, in today's world. Um, yeah, like, people people kill people, and they start to like it. Like, it may just be because they're a good shot, or still, it's still evil. And uh, Josh was the second one. The real evils in war. Oh, my bad. Revengeful, cruelty, and implacable enmity, hatred. So, so what is what is revengeful, revengeful cruelty? Uh, that's uh, getting back at somebody for something they did, getting revenge on somebody. Uh, Christians shouldn't uh, try to get revenge on someone. They should just let it be. Yeah, they shouldn't want to have vengeance on somebody. Like, like say that they, uh, like one of their buddies die, and they kill him out of evil. They're they're not killing them to serve the country, and that's probably a problem in today's world. Which I don't. Like, it may the Bible may not agree with this, but I feel like a lot of times that makes like the war stronger. But sometimes it doesn't, cause the war is like um, it's more of like like it makes people more aggressive and die easier. Like it makes them open up easier and they're dead. But nowadays you don't really have a lot of war. Um, you don't really have a lot of war with um, it's like guns and stuff unless you're stationed somewhere and you get attacked. Usually you just have a, you call somebody and they drop a bomb on you. So. Uh, in early Old Testament times, war was often seen as a holy war, a conflict initiated and led by God. Such a war was declared by God himself. And every facet of war had religious significance. Sacrificial rites were performed to ensure God's continued support. The sacred Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of God, was often taken into battle. Uh, later in Israel's history, the prophets began to see the terror of war as God's judgment against his people for their sins, and the glory of war faded. Israel, Israel began to look to the day when the endless cycle of war would be broken. Um, the law will go out from Zion, the world of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, He will judge between the nations and will settle dispute, disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Uh, what's it say in the New Testament? Well, that was, what verse was that? that you just quoted? That was uh, Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. Okay. So, and, and I'll New read what the New Testament says. So, 
In the New Testament, war is universally seen as evil, and Jesus emphasized peace instead. He advised us to avoid retaliation and revenge, and to extend our love even to our enemy. And this is Matthew five thirty-eight through 45. Um, I don't know the context of this, but this is what it says. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said, "Eye for eye and tooth for tooth." But I tell you, do you do not resist an evil person? If someone strikes you right on the cheek, turn turn him the other also. So that's where the saying comes from: turn the other cheek. And uh, and if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, I guess which means your money, uh, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Um, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Um... The Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers echo Jesus' sentiment and explained on it. This is Romans twelve, seventeen through 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Uh, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Um, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you heap the burning coals upon his head. Do not overcome by evil, but over, overcome evil with good. And um, mainly that's just talking about retaliation. Like, if if you have an enemy, don't don't retaliate. And just give them good. And, um, so. We need to talk about weapons. Weapons. There's, here's my view on it. There's a, uh, there's a lot of different views on weapons. And, and honestly, it's already political. Like, real political about weapons. And I'm not even really into politics. But I think people should have weapons. But. There should for the right reasons. Yeah, which, I mean, God made weapons, so you can't really take them away fully. It's just like, it's just like drugs, they're all illegal, but people still have them, and it's it's very common to see them used every day. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, uh, what? The Bible was written long before the invention of any type of gun. So the phrase gun control will not be found in Scripture. However, the Bible records so many accounts of wars, battles, and the use of weapons. Warfare is presented as inevitable part of living in a fallen world, and weaponry is a necessary part of warfare. Weapons in the Bible are also used for personal protection. In some parts of Israel, robbers were common. And many people carried weapons when they traveled. Carrying a weapon for self-defense is never condemned in the Bible. In fact, it was mentioned in a positive light by Jesus himself on one occasion. 
Christians are called to submit the governing authorities, and they are to obey the laws of the land. This would have to apply to gun laws, too. If American gun laws change, American Christians should submit to these changes and work through democratic means towards any desired alternatives. The Bible does not forbid the possession of weapons, and neither does it command such possession. Laws may come and go, but the goal of the believer in Jesus Christ remains the same, to glorify the Lord. Well, what that means, I interpret it. It's basically saying that there's nothing wrong with having a gun as long as you don't use it to just go around shooting people. Or having a knife in case somebody tries to rob you and you protect yourself. Jesus did, never said it was a bad thing, but people need to know when is the right time to use them. And people need to learn how to follow the laws. Pretty much. Um, this, this, um, this article is by Matthew Arbo. It says, The Case Against the Death Penalty. And I'm going to just read you a couple couple things that I'm just standing out to me. Uh, little objections. And here's um, the practical objections. Uh, it's it's um, consider the following U.S. statistics. More than half of death row, death row inmates are people of color. Since 1977, the overwhelming majority of death row, death row inmates, 77%, have been executed for killing white victims, even though African Americans were victims in a half of all homicides. Um, in half of all um, homicides. In 1973, 140 individuals on death row have been exonerated. What's exonerated mean? Exonerated? Yeah, exonerated. Killed? Let's look it up. Look it up. I'm going to take a second. Hold on. Blame for fault or wrongdoing. Release someone. Oh, so they've been released. So, so they've been taken off death row. So maybe we need better law school. Is how it's done. Uh, actually, that's not a lot of. I don't know. Look, how many people are on death row right now? Top one. 170. Oh, that's just in Alabama. Say, on death row every, in the whole world, in the whole United States. Two thousand five hundred four. So two thousand five hundred four just this year. So like that means they're adding them to that. But only 140 individuals have been blamed for the wrongdoing. So, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't really know much about it. But there's a lot of people on death row. And uh, it says almost all death row inmates cannot afford their own trial attorney. So, what it's kind of saying is people that have the death penalty um, usually... If they're doing the wrong thing, they're already, they're either right with God and they know they're not getting out 
and they're, they're just accept death. Or um, they, they don't have enough money to, like, like, even fight it. And they know a lot of cases, if you're on death row, it's serious. And a lot of cases, you're, you're guilty, right? That's like the main thing is that people that are getting uh, uh, put on death row or think they're going to be put on death row, they're probably guilty. And there's not a lot of times where uh, and there may be like a self-defense case, but usually if you're going put up to death row, then you're guilty. Here's an argument uh, written by uh, Dan Van Ness. He's the president of Justice Fellowship. He says, Scripture mandates capital punishment. <clears throat> Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God has God made man. This is a part of a larger covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. It not only reflects the great value of human life, but also gives the reason for that value. Man is made in God's image. The absolute language of Genesis 9-6 suggests that all, all those who kill another human must be killed. And since this mandate was given long before the Mosaic Law to all who survived the flood, it apparently has a universal application. Another one says, The law, as given to Moses on Mount Sinai, ordained execution for several offenses murder striking or cursing a parent kidnapping adultery incest bestiality sodomy rape of brother virgin witchcraft incor incorrigible delinquency breaking the sabbath blasphemy sacrificing to false gods oppressing the weak and other transgressions while no New Testament passage expressly mandates capital punishment, several imply the appropriateness. For example, in Romans 13, 1-7, Paul calls his readers to submit to the authority of civil government, reminding them that if you do wrong, be afraid, for, the, for he does not bear the sword for nothing in its ultimate use. The word sword implies execution. Uh, it says, The Apostle Paul makes clear that governing authorities are tasked with implementing the wrath of God on the evildoer. In Romans 13, 1-6, Paul makes a logical argument with multiple interrelated premises. Uh, there's six of them. And uh, it's cool how it still applies today. And it really, the first one doesn't. But it says all authorities have been established by God, which they have. Like, uh, I mean, people may not believe in him, but the, they'll usually come up in somebody's life. And then somehow um, all Christians are subject to these governing authorities. And what's, Josh, what is governing authority? Governing authority? That's like the police and people stuff. over you, yeah. So, like, nowadays, like, it can always get political, but there's people that hate the police 
And a lot of times if you hate the police, it sounds like you're a Democrat, which I don't believe a lot. But if you're a Christian, you um, you you love everyone, huh? Um, it says governing authorities are God's servants, um, which means that that like they'll have a calling on their heart, what's right or wrong, usually, and if they're God's servants, then they should make the right decision, and if they don't, they can change the trial. Um, number five says, resisting these authorities is resisting what God has appointed and will result in divine judgment upon the individual. And number six says, governing authorities that bear the sword are carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So, like, they make the right decisions usually, but it it will come back to the people that did it. And they don't have to do anything about it except punish it. Um, the last thing really I want to say is that war makes peace. And a lot of times it, uh, it's supposed to make peace. And usually um, it doesn't, honestly. It, it'll, it, nothing's eternal peace except heaven. So it can, in some ways it can make peace if you're right with God, doing the right thing, trying to protect your country. And it says, this last article says, Can Guns Be Pro-Life? by Karen Pryor. says, It's not every Christmas morning you wake up with a Bursa 380 in your Christmas stocking. So you had to go, what it's kind of saying is, you had to go through a real process to get a gun. And... Uh, at the end of the article, it says, Yes, God is watching over me, yet I'm still called to wisdom and good stewardship of all the gifts He's given me, including my life and health. So, really, you have to go through a lot of things to get guns, and it's um, however you agree with guns, um, everybody's going to need a weapon, I think. And if you don't, God can be your weapon, I guess. But, God gave us or gave somebody the idea to make a weapon and it, I don't think it was for the wrongdoing I think it was for war and like war can still kind of go into self defense in a way so I mean you're just protecting your country and that's kind of self defense so I think we'll end it there um, it was I like that chapter I think it was my favorite one so far and all right.